Isaiah 60, 1 to 7. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will, will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They will bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neb Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you on this Christmas morning. And here at One Ancient Hope, we've been working through uh, the antiphons during Advent, where we're looking at these, these titles of Christ that are taken from the prophetic writings, titles of, of Christ that you, you might be familiar with because of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And, and today, we're looking at that title, Desire of Nations, Christ as the Desire of the nations, and, and that's a, a title that we get here from Isaiah 60. So before we turn to this text, let us turn before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the gift of, of Christ. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it tells us about him. And thank you, Lord, that we stand on the other end of this promise, that we've seen this promise fulfilled in the most wonderful of ways, in this child, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, uh, that through these words, uh, by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to see and appreciate this gift of Christ ever more deeply. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in today's passage, we are given a basic promise. The promise that we will see God in his glory, and that we will dwell in perfect peace with those who share this beatific vision, this vision of God. We will come together in the great city of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, the great meeting place of heaven and earth, of God and humanity. And so as we come to this text, as we come to this promise, we have to ask ourselves a question. Does this stir our hearts? Does this actually stir our hearts? C.S. Lewis once said that heaven is an acquired taste. And do you feel this? Do you recognize that if we, if, if, if we don't want this, if we don't want this future, then we can't really hope for it? 
That is, uh, perhaps we don't desire this in the same way that we desired a Christmas gift that we unwrapped earlier this morning. Perhaps this does not move our hearts, as does the thought of a promotion. Perhaps this doesn't stir our affections in the same way as, as thinking about our child getting a full-ride scholarship to some prestigious school. And yet, God never promises any of these things. We may get just what we want for Christmas. We may get the job that we've long hoped for. We may get that scholarship letter from a prestigious academic institution. And if we do, let us receive those things gladly and gratefully as gifts from God. All the same, we are never promised these things. No, what God promises is something else, and what God promises is something infinitely better. And so, if we are to hope rightly, we must learn to put our hope, to place our hope in what God actually promises. We must place our hope in the future that's here described in Isaiah 60. Only if we place our hope here can we have true hope. That's because only this and not something else is absolutely certain to happen in the future. Only in this way can we be wholly confident in our hope, a hope that will not disappoint and a hope that will not give way to despair. And so in the simplest of terms, the goal of this life is to learn to desire this future. Quite simply, if we don't desire this, then we will not hope for this. Because hope is a desire for some future outcome. And if we don't truly desire Isaiah 60, then the best that we can do is simply expect it. Without desire, we can never truly hope for it. And if this is our true and certain future, and if it is an acquired taste then let us learn to acquire that taste and that desire with all that we have. And let's begin by looking at the imagery by which Isaiah describes this place of perfect peace and communion between God and humanity. Isaiah speaks of this reality as receiving the light of the Lord. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The Lord himself is described as the sun that rises over the city and illumines this place of peace amidst a deep, deep darkness, a thick darkness that has fallen upon the peoples. The Lord gives his light and the people receive his light and then others see that light that shines upon God's people. Isaiah tells us that what actually draws the people of the earth to the city is the light of the people of the city. It's their light that draws all of the nations to the city of the Lord. But again, the source of this light is the Lord himself. The light rises and shines his light upon his people. 
And that light is the Lord. The reformer John Calvin, identifying this city with the church, with the people of God, he helps us understand this dynamic of divine light. He writes, God confers on the church the very highest honor that she shines with such brightness as to attract to herself the nations and princes. God calls it the light of the church, not that she has any light from herself, but borrows it from Christ as the moon borrows from the sun. God is the sun and we are the moons. He is the source of light and we are those who receive and reflect this light to others. And this light that we reflect is meant to draw others into the church and ultimately into this future city of God. And so what does this truth mean for us? Well, first and foremost, it means that the Christian life is to be a life of welcome and hospitality. It's meant to be a life that draws people in. It's no secret that we live in an epidemic of loneliness. For instance, 15% of men report having no close friendships, none at all. Think about that. A recent Harvard study has found that 36% of Americans feel serious loneliness. And this study identifies two groups who rate higher than this already high average. Specifically, 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children identify as suffering from serious loneliness. And being creatures that are both physical and spiritual, we can't simply assume that these emotional struggles have no effect on our body. The suffering from loneliness is just as lethal as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. What does this have to do with the city of God? Well, again, this city is a place that people are drawn into. And at present, we must ask, are we drawing people into the community of the church? Are we offering hospitality and welcome and so reflecting the light of the Lord? Is this church fighting the epidemic of loneliness here in Iowa City? And right now, we're in the holiday season, and so invite someone in church over for some holiday celebration. Combine a holiday celebration with friends and or another family. Open your home to share this time with others. And think about the groups that this study identifies as at risk. Young adults and mothers with children and sadly, men generally. If you're a man, are you forming deep friendships with other men? And are you coming alongside young men? Do you have close friendships with guys that are not only the same age as you, but also younger and older? If not, start forming these relationships. If you're a woman, are you reaching out to young women? Are you developing connections with mothers of young children? Again, these mothers might get very little contact with adults throughout the day. How might you be able to minister to them? And of course, if you are an adult in this church, do you know the children of this church? 
Do you know their names? Would they ever ask you for advice? If the only Christian adults that the church's children know well by the time that they graduate from high school, then our church has failed these children miserably. It's Christmas. And so after the service, perhaps go and talk with children about their Christmas. And this too is about acquiring a taste and a desire for our one true hope. If our future is to dwell in God's city of warm welcome and hospitality, if our future is ceaselessly welcoming our neighbors, then we better be welcoming our neighbors and showing hospitality now. The certain hope of Isaiah 60 is not a time, is not a place of isolation. What we find here is a bustling city full of people in loving fellowship. Yet, if you don't enjoy being around people now, then the future city of God can hold no sway in your heart. And so start practicing this now. Start being with people. Start learning to love, dwelling together. If you drink coffee, maybe some of you, remember the very first time that you tried it and probably how much you, you hated it. Maybe you, you took a sip from one of your, your parents' cups. And think about how much you love it now, a, a kind of life-giving nectar. And think about what that process looked like. Well, why should we think that forming right affections for the city amidst our sinful taste for isolation why should we think that that would be any less of a process? Again, as Lewis warns us, for sinful humanity, the city of God is an acquired taste. Just like we learn to love the coffee, we have to learn to love the dwelling together of the city. And of course, there is a future that's characterized by isolation but that's called hell. And so we must ask ourselves, with the way that we relate to other people, are we giving ourselves a taste for heaven or for hell? If we continually and continually and continually opt for a night alone from other people, we're actually preparing our hearts for a future that's wholly antithetical, wholly opposite to this city of God. We're forming our hearts for the complete lack of relationality that is hell. However, to learn to desire the city of God, which is a city of warm welcome and fellowship, we must practice being a people of warm welcome and warm fellowship now. If we're not drawing people to church now, then what makes us think that we will enjoy doing this for all eternity in the city of God? If this means that we have to leave our comfort zone, so be it. Life is not about comfort. Life is about conformity to the purposes and plans of God. And this may mean that you need to offer invitations to others, or this might mean that you have to start accepting the invitations of others. Because that too is a crucial way that God intends for us to reflect his light. But 
How, you might ask, does such welcome, such hospitality, such peace, how does this reflect the light of God? And in fact, don't we actually see just the reverse in this passage? We read in this passage of all of the nations coming and bringing gifts to the city of the Lord. They come with offerings to God. They're here pictured as camels and flocks. Isaiah here calls these gifts the wealth of nations. And isn't this the opposite of what we would expect? If we find here the great city of hospitality, wouldn't people be coming to God and receiving gifts from Him rather than us giving gifts to God? What's going on here? What are we supposed to make of this? Well, to answer this question, we have to look at the end of verse 6. God, speaking of all of the nations, tells us, They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. How does this point us to the answer to this question? Well, these are, of course, the gifts brought by the Magi, the wise men, in Matthew 2, to the child Christ. And before they give these gifts to Christ, we read, And going into the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. As Matthew tells us, they worship this child, and this is a stark statement for a Jewish gospel writer who worships only and solely the one true God. As New Testament scholar Richard Hayes writes of this action of the Magi, Matthew is identifying Jesus as nothing less than the embodied presence of Israel's God, the one to whom alone worship is due, the one who jealously forbids the worship of any idols, images, or other gods. Matthew is saying that this child is both human and God, that this child is God become human. And so he is both divine light, the one true God, and he is the perfect reflection of that light, the perfectly flourishing human being. And so, in response, the Magi, the wise men, they do well to fall down before this young child in worship. And to be sure, they give us a picture of what will one day happen as all people from across time and space who have fallen down in worship before the one true God, as they come to him into the city of God and they offer him their gifts. The wise men are an image anticipating the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 60. However, strictly speaking, the list of gifts that are mentioned by Isaiah, they don't exactly match the catalog of offerings that we see the Magi give Christ. Matthew tells us, Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But again, in Isaiah 60, verse 6, we're told of the nations, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. In accordance with Isaiah, the Magi offer gold and frankincense to Christ. As theologian Thomas Wynandy points out, the Christian tradition has long associated the gold as the recognition of the kingship of Christ, 
and the frankincense with the worship of Christ, with the incense of the temple altar. But what of this third gift? What of the myrrh? We do find three gifts in Isaiah 60, but the third is not myrrh. No, the third thing that the nation shall bring is good news, the praises of the Lord. So why the difference? Why the seeming contradiction? What is going on here? Well, my friends, there is no contradiction. Nothing at all is amiss between these lists. They correspond perfectly. The myrrh is the good news itself. The Christian tradition has long understood the myrrh as signifying the anointing of Jesus' body for his death and his burial. Myrrh represents the child's coming death. The Magi bring gold and frankincense, and most importantly, they bring the good news, the gospel. And bringing myrrh, what they bring is the gospel. How is this so? Well, remember, in this city of God, we are to reflect the love of God. And we do this by drawing others into this perfect place of fellowship, into the city that is built upon the loving union of God with humanity. And if this is what we reflect, then somehow God himself must be this very reality. But how can God be this reality? How can God himself be the reality of this perfect union between himself and us? Well, listen again to how Calvin puts our reflecting of the divine light. Calvin writes, Not that the church has any light from herself, but borrows it from Christ, as the moon borrows from the sun. The light that the church reflects is the light of Christ. But how is this so? Well, Christ just is God and humanity in perfect loving fellowship and union with one another. Christ is the reality that the city of God is founded upon. He is its reality. He is himself the peace between God and us. He is the one true God, and now in the birth of this child, he is humanity as God intends humanity to be. Christ in his divinity is God's loving address to us, and Christ in his humanity is our loving response to God. Christ is both creator and creature, author and story, artist and image, sculptor and sculpture, composer and symphony, speaker and listener, teacher and student, love graciously given and love gratefully received. Christ is both God and human. Christ is the cornerstone of this city because he is what the city is meant to be. He is God and humanity reconciled. Christ is the light, the sun that we as moons gratefully receive and reflect to others. And this brings us back to myrrh and to that larger question of hospitality and welcome. Yes, the myrrh is something that we give to Christ, but this is not an act of our hospitality and welcome but it's the hospitality and welcome of Christ.
Again, when we bring Christ myrrh, we anoint Christ for burial. In giving Christ myrrh, we anoint him for burial by laying upon him our sins against God. In giving Christ myrrh, we acknowledge that we have rejected our good and gracious God, that we have not been human as we, have, as we ought to have been a human, that we have not used our human life as did this child who will grow and live the perfect life of love before God and neighbor. In bringing myrrh to Christ, what we bring him is our repentance and our faith. In bringing the myrrh of repentance and faith, we recognize that Christ, that this child can alone do what we cannot. In bringing the myrrh and repentance, the myrrh of repentance and faith, we recognize that Christ alone is the offering of the full human life to God. To bring myrrh, to bring repentance and faith, is not so much to make an offering to Christ as to receive his offering as our offering. To anoint Christ for death with myrrh is to cling to his death as our only hope. In bringing the myrrh of repentance and faith, we make Christ's perfect offering our own, the offering of the life that we should have lived and the offering of the death that we should have died for not doing so. As the medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury writes, What indeed can be conceived of more merciful than that God the Father should say to a sinner condemned to eternal torments and lacking any means of redeeming himself, take my only begotten Son and give him on your behalf. And that the Son himself should say, take me, take me and redeem yourself. Bringing our myrrh to Christ is actually receiving from him a gift of receiving the offering of his humanity to God as our own. Again, as Isaiah tells us, Christ is the light that shines in the thick darkness that covers the earth into the darkness of our loneliness and sadness and isolation and despair. Christ shines as the light the light that cuts and dispels even the thickest darkness of death. To bring Christ myrrh is to receive the light of Christ and to shine it back to God and neighbor as our own. It's to receive light as the moon receives light. It's to make Christ's offering our offering. And so we see that all of the hospitality and the welcome that characterizes the city of God, it's not built upon our gifts. All of the gold and frankincense that we bring, all of the camels and the flocks and any other resource that we rightly offer to God, all of this is only a response to the great gift of Christ to us. And like the nations and the wise men, let us bring this good news and this praise of God to others. God has welcomed us, and so let us welcome our neighbor. This is the gift that God has given us on Christmas. Let us learn to receive it ever more fully by letting it stir our heart. May we 
desire this city that's founded upon the reality of Christ, may we desire it more and more by acquiring the taste that alone will give us true and certain hope. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can bring you our myrrh and that you receive it gladly. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, as an offering for us that we can take freely because you have given him graciously. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.